Welcome to Marketing Mistakes and How to Avoid Them. I'm Stacey Jones, the founder of influencer marketing and branded content agency, Hollywood Branded. This podcast provides brand marketers a learning platform for top experts to share their insights and knowledge on topics which make a direct impact on your business today. While it is impossible to be well-versed on every topic and strategy that can improve bottom line results, my goal is to help you avoid making costly mistakes of time, energy, or money, whether you are doing a DIY approach or hiring an expert to help. Let's begin today's discussion. Welcome to Marketing Mistakes and How to Avoid Them. Here's your host, Stacy Jones. I'm so happy to be here with you all today and want to give a very warm welcome to Richard Chapo, a business lawyer with 27 years of experience specializing in internet law. Based in San Diego, Richard helps entrepreneurs avoid copyright infringement letters and other threats when operating online, including the new Digital Millennium Copyright Act and best practices for using and collecting contact information. Today, we're also going to talk about the hot topic in 2019, the new California Consumer Privacy Act that goes into effect this next January and has been described as gdpr light for the United States, and how it's going to impact the majority of online businesses that gather personal data from residents in California. We'll learn what Richard advises to keep you legally compliant today, what maybe should be avoided, and where other companies are missing the mark. Richard, welcome. Thank you for having me on. Greatly excited to have you here. I have so many questions about internet copyright law and how to keep our business protected and other businesses protected. So, but I'd love to have you start off talking about, you know, how long you've been doing what you've been doing, a little bit more about your background, which is quite interesting, where you're at and what got you to what you're doing today. Uh, sure. So I uh, became a licensed attorney in oh, 1992. Uh, I grew up in Southern California. It was horrible. Um, and I've been practicing law since then, originally focused on litigation, uh, primarily complex litigation and an area of law called bad faith insurance, uh, wrongful death. I used to defend hospitals and doctors and things of that sort. And like many attorneys, I burned out on it. And so in uh, 1999, I went to uh, Siberia for a year, of all places, to teach law and just generally uh, contemplate my navel, if you will, figure out what I wanted to do with my life. And so uh, upon return, uh, decided to, instead of do litigation, focus more on helping uh, small businesses uh, basically grow and avoid you know, some of the common problems that they run into. And I had a friend who was working as a CEO of an internet company. Now, keep in mind, this is 1998, so everybody was a CEO of an internet company. Um, and uh, he needed some legal work done, didn't you know, know the field, neither did I, quite honestly. And uh, But nonetheless, we decided to have a go at it. And I've been doing it ever since. That is awesome. And I'm sure Siberia was quite an interesting break from California life. It was definitely a change, but yeah, it was a good one. It was a, a great experience. You know, you don't often get a chance to spend a year somewhere and really uh, kind of dive down into uh, the people and the culture there. So it was a good time. It was definitely a good time. That's great. So to start off, I know I want to go into some deeper dive subjects on some content usage and influencers and uh, a lot of different topics along those lines, but can we start off chatting a little bit more about the whole California Consumer Privacy Act since, you know, we spent the last two years almost listening to what's happening in Europe and how, you know, everything's changed with compliance there. And now it's coming over to the United States and businesses who don't actually put in some safeguards are opening themselves up to some definite issues. 
Sure. So the situation, obviously, that we had in Europe was uh, the GDPR, which went into effect in May 2018. It was the uh, General Data Protection Regulation. And uh, from the business perspective, it is a, uh, well, it's a killer regulation. It is uh, the kind of regulation that even people who work at the DMV look at and go, hmm, that might be a bit much. Uh, it has extensive requirements, record keeping, uh, tech changes, and things of that sort that you have to make. However, it did have a you know, what I think most people would agree is probably an acceptable goal, which was to try to give individuals a better idea of you know, what information is being collected about them online and how it's being used, who it's being shared with. Uh, and so the California uh, Consumer Privacy Act is basically shooting for the same thing. Now, fortunately, once you actually start reading the act, it's, it kind of gets rid of a lot of the sharp elbows that you see in the GDPR. Uh, and instead, it really works to uh, give people, uh, you know, again, the ability to understand what's being collected about them. Uh, because I think when most of us think of personal data, we think of perhaps our name, you know, our email address, maybe our phone number. Um, but, you know, technology has become so sophisticated that even just your IP address or indirect identifiers like geolocation, uh, the devices you're using can be used to create profiles. Uh, and sell information. I mean, all you have to think about is if you're on Google and you do a search for something, uh, you know, the next week you see ads for, you know, something related to that topic. Uh, and that's essentially what's going on. There's basically you know, behavioral profiling and what have you. Uh, and so the CCPA basically tries to address that and it gives people uh, a number of different rights. One is the right to know what personal information is being collected about you. Uh, and so you can contact, you know, whatever site, obviously Facebook would be kind of the classic site that we look at. Uh, the right to know whether personal information is sold or disclosed. And so they're going to have to provide you that information. And then you're going to have the right to uh, tell them to stop. And uh, so that's a, a different aspect that we don't even see in the GDPR, which is considered you know, pretty extensive regulation. Uh, so that's an interesting new twist. Uh, then you're going to have the right to uh, access your personal information. And so that, that means you're going to be able to say to companies online, you know, I want to know what you've collected about uh, from me and, you know, over the last 12 months. And so that's going to give you a look back period and you'll get a better idea of kind of what people are grabbing, what they're doing. You know, if you've ever done advertising on Facebook, uh, you can really drill down into a lot of the data they have. It's kind of amazing <laughs> some of the information that they have uh, and how you can, you know, filter it this way and that. So I think a lot of people would be very surprised to learn, you know, what this information is. Um, and then you're going to have a right to equal service and price. So what that means essentially is that if you express any other or you exercise any of the other rights under the CCPA, um, people can't discriminate against you. So if you make a request for your data, you know, they can't suddenly raise your prices or, or do anything of that sort. So it's kind of an equalization uh, effort. Uh, and then from the business side, you know, obviously you're gonna have to implement procedures to deal with all of those uh, issues. Um, but you're also going to have to uh, amend your contracts with your vendors, anybody who's having access to information through your site. So that could be plugins, cookies, you know, any of these groups. Uh, and you're gonna have to make sure that they are compliant with the CCPA as well. Uh, and so that somewhat mirrors what we see with the GDPR. So what does all this mean? What about penalties? Um, so the penalties are basically uh, the California Attorney General is in charge of enforcing the act from a governmental perspective. And the penalties can be up to $7,500 per intentional violation. So if you don't do anything to comply or you, you take you know, some type of action to circumvent, uh, $7,500 per violation. And a violation can often be interpreted as a single person who you've collected information from, um, you know, and not applied with the CCPA. 
So if you've done that with one person, you've probably done it with many. <laughs> and so, so that number grows pretty quickly. Uh, if it's an unintentional violation, you just were negligent, you messed it up, then it drops to $2,500 per violation. Um, now, the interesting thing is the act also includes a, um, uh, a class action. Uh, well, not even just class action, but a right of private lawsuit. Basically, any individual who's impacted can sue you. Uh, but the damages are limited to uh, $100 or 700 uh, between $100 and $750. However, they can bring class action lawsuits. So that's going to be a problem for some of the larger companies that are out there. Now, the interesting thing about this is that the CCPA kind of has a saving grace, and that is it has a 30-day cure period. Uh, so it appears, uh, we're still waiting for regulations to be issued, but it appears as though uh, the California Attorney General and even private parties will have to give you notice of whatever it is they're complaining about, and then you have 30 days to cure it. And if you don't cure it in that 30-day period, then they you know, can go forward with penalties and lawsuits. Okay, so that's a lot of information. If we can break it down, and it's great information to have, what does that mean to a company? Does that mean that the email lists that they have and that they're blasting away at are now going to need to be scrubbed or changed or anything altered with that at all? Not necessarily, not, not from what we're seeing so far. Um, and the, the difference between that and the GDPR, a lot of people ran into that with the GDPR. And the problem is the GDPR requires you to have a legal basis before you can collect personal data. And uh, there are six different types, and the most common type was consent. And so if you developed an email list, and you didn't have an affirmative consent where somebody you know, essentially checked a box saying, yes, you can email me promotional materials, well, you, you pretty much had to scrape those people off your list. At least certainly that was one common interpretation. Um, the CCPA doesn't have a consent provision. It doesn't have a legal basis requirement. Uh, and so that's not in there. So if you have an email list, you're probably in good shape. Now, if you are uh, meeting certain thresholds, you're gonna have to comply with the CCPA regardless of where you are. So whether you're in Maine or you're in Brazil, uh, and those thresholds are essentially, if you bring in more than $25 million in revenues, um, if you make more than 50% of your revenues from the sale of personal data or, or the rental of it. Um, so for instance, if you have a lead generation company, uh, that would be a situation where that would apply. Or if you receive, uh, sell, or share more than 50, uh, the data of more than 50,000 uh, individuals uh, or uh, devices. Uh, and those are individuals, from what we, what we can tell so far, that are natural residents of California. So not 50,000 individuals you know, around the world. Um, so we're looking at, you know, we have those thresholds that, that will protect smaller businesses. Um, but as your business grows in size and as you, you move around more data, um, you know, you're probably going to have to face some of this. But email lists, you know, actually probably going to come through with this, uh, through this law without being too hurt, I would say. Okay. And then does this really impact more businesses and companies that are targeting a private consumer? Or does this also carry over to uh, if you operate on a B2B level and you are capturing data of a business user that your target is? Is there a differentiation? What it focuses on are natural residents uh, or natural persons who are residents of California. So it includes uh, consumers, but also B2B. Uh, it actually also includes your employees. Interesting. Your employees, even. Yes, it's uh, it's going to be a surprise for some businesses. One of the things about this law, and the reason why there's some hesitation with the answers, is um, 
the origins of the CCPA are, are somewhat bizarre. It was actually going to be brought as an initiative in California. And so you can have initiatives put on the ballot and you can bypass the legislature and the governor. If people you know, vote in a specific way to approve something, then it just becomes law. And so this was initially an initiative that was brought by a, um, a real estate investor up in San Francisco and a couple other people. And it was uh, written in such a way that as soon as it passed, it would have gone into effect. Businesses would have not been able to comply. Um, just there wasn't enough time. And then it was also going to violate other laws like HIPAA uh, and uh, you know some other different provisions out there that are federal laws. So it would have caused all kinds of problems. So the bizarre thing that happened was in uh, the summer of 2018, it became apparent that it was going to pass. The polls were just, you know, very much in favor of it. We were having the Cambridge Analytica issues with Facebook. And so people, you know, were fired up about privacy. Uh, and so uh, politics being what it is in California, uh, the legislature just made a deal with the people who were behind the initiative. And they said, what we'll do is we'll basically create this law. We'll mirror, you know, a law that mirrors the initiative, but we're going to make some changes uh, and they went through and they negotiated out what that was going to be, but they did it all in seven days. And so they enacted um, the law in those seven day period. The reason they did it so fast was the initiative had to be taken off of the ballot by a certain date and they were running up to a deadline. So the GDPR in Europe took four years to draft and the California Consumer Privacy Act was drafted in seven days. Uh, and so as you can imagine, there are parts of it that are a mess. Uh, that you know, conflict with itself. Um, you know, they th there are things like, you know, what's a device? Is that your smartphone? Is that your tablet? Uh, is it your PC at home? What about a TV? What about Alexa? Um, you know, <laughs> there are all these kinds of questions. And so we're seeing a series of amendments coming along, trying to fix those problems um, with the law. But yeah, from what we're seeing right now, it's going to be, you know, everybody, consumers, business, business, employees. Um, it's going to be pretty pervasive. No, that's really interesting. I had no idea our state could actually operate that quickly. That's even more amazing. It is. It is very amazing. And sometimes government, you know, it's, it's interesting. So some of the things they will get together on and, and have a go at. Now, the interesting side note to this is uh, there's a question now about whether we will see a national privacy law. As hard as that is to believe that Washington, D.C., they would get anything done. Um, the concern is that we're going to see every different state basically you know, passing their own laws, and they're all going to have different requirements, at which point, you know, of course, there's no way for businesses to comply with everything. Uh, and so there's a thought that there may be a big push for a national law, and you're seeing groups like Google and Facebook starting to get behind that concept. So it'll be interesting to see how that develops. And two things that you mentioned earlier, one, you know, you just briefly touched on it, that they're trying to decide what constitutes an actual device, because there's a, you mentioned that there was a total device number that played into those metrics, I believe. Yes. Yes. So we're looking at 50,000 um, well, visits from individuals or devices or households uh, in a year. Now, if you think about that number, that's actually pretty low. We're talking about, you know, if we're looking at a website and we were just talking visitors, we're talking about you know, maybe, I don't know, 4,200 people a month. So that's a pretty low threshold. Uh, and, you know, a lot of sites are going to hit that. And the complaint that we're seeing, uh, and we actually have had a number of different, you know, uh, professors who teach internet law have written, you know, letters to the legislature saying this number is way too low uh, because you're going to pick up, you know, even maybe small bloggers uh, and groups of that sort. And the cost of compliance is going to be, you know, so deadly. Uh, and so the question is, well, how are we going to define household and device? You know, what does sell, share, and rent mean? Um, you know, these are the kind of the legal topics a lot of people hate lawyers <laughs> about. Um, but you need a definition of them so that we know, because if that 50,000 number doesn't grow 
from a practical standpoint, you know, this law is going to uh, capture quite a few different companies. Uh, and it's, I think really their intention is they're looking at the bigger data brokers, but if they set that number at 50,000, you know, I mean, I, I'm not sure how many visits you get in a month, you know, yeah. your it's, a, it's a pretty low number. No, even with our agency on our blog, I mean, we're getting at least, you know, 20 odd thousand or so reads on our blogs on a monthly basis and it grows, you know, each month there's more and there's more. So that would impact us greatly. We use software like HubSpot. You know, we don't rent, we don't sell our lists of people, but it does track IP addresses. It does track cities and all sorts of things if we really wanted to dive in there. So for a company like ours, you know, we're not selling the list. We're not distributing the list. You know, we're using a software company like HubSpot, which is, you know, obviously they're going to hopefully, you know, be compliant, not selling lists and doing things along those lines. We would expect that. What risks am I opening up as an agency potentially? Well, that's, that's kind of the interesting question. So traditionally what we would expect is that HubSpot is going to be viewed as a vendor. And so they're going to, you're going to have to essentially grab what are called data protection agreements. Um, they might be called something different under this, but an agreement from them, they'll have a written contract that basically says that they are compliant with the CCPA. And if they're not compliant with the CCPA, then the question is, what's your liability versus their liability? And that's not clear yet in the law. Uh, the California Attorney General is charged with issuing regulations, and those regulations are going to detail um, you know, a lot of these issues. But under the GDPR, at least, which is this trying to mirror, you had joint liability. So if you're in Europe, uh, you know, and you have a website, each of your vendors who has access to any of that personal information, be it cookies or plugins or HubSpot or, you know, whoever, um, you know, you're supposed to be getting a data protection or data processing agreement from, and, you know, they have to put forth all of these regulations or all of these warranties and guarantees that they're complying with the GDPR. And there are, you know, many questions about whether that's actually happening, um, you know, but if you get audited at that point, you know, they can come after you uh, as the website, they can go after the processor, and it's very draconian. Now, what we're actually seeing in the GDPR as far as enforcement actions and what have you um, is not a lot of that just simply because they're overwhelmed with breach uh, notices. In the last eight months, there's something like, I want to say 85,000 uh, breach notifications <laughs> that were submitted <laughs> to the supervisory authorities. So under the GDPR, if you're hacked, uh, if you're a business and you're hacked, you have to voluntarily come forward within 72 hours and notify uh, the supervisory authority in the country you've picked, uh, hey, I was hacked. And so the fact that they've had 85,000 notices on that is rather staggering. Um, <laughs> gives you an right. idea. I would say the hackers are winning at this point then um, gives you some uh, a little bit of lack of uh, confidence in some of the security programs out there. Right. I mean, gosh, I think the hacking is just going to grow and grow and grow. That's not going away. Um, well, that's the irony of this. And really the people who really abuse privacy and information, I mean, you have the big data companies and you have, you know, maybe the Facebooks and Googles of the world, depending on what you think of how they use the data. Um, but those companies are not really going to be deterred by any of this right. because they have the resources. And if you're talking about somebody who's, you know, quote unquote, illegally using the data, so hackers or somebody who's spamming, um, you know, if somebody has a, a mailing list of 100 million emails and they're spamming them, you know, 10 million a day, well, they don't care what the laws are out there. You know, that's that's built into their business model, their servers in the Ukraine, you know, they're living in Singapore, you know, or wherever, um, you know, and so some of these laws, some of the intent behind them, I think, misses the point completely. Right. <laughs> 
because there's somewhat of a utopian view as to what impact these laws are going to have. Uh, and a lot of them are very burdensome on small businesses. There's a reason why there aren't a lot of big internet companies in Europe, uh, because the regulations are just so brutal. Hmm. Well, all of that is incredibly a little bit scary, but thank you for sharing <laughs> that. Well, here's, here's the key point with the California Consumer Protection Act. Yep. It's February 2019 as we're chatting now. It doesn't go into effect until January 1st, 2020. So you've got 10 months to see kind of what happens with it. Uh, we're not actually expecting enforcement by the California Attorney General until the summer of 2020 okay. uh, because they have to issue regulations. and They've indicated that's not happening anytime soon. So uh, it's not like this is happening tomorrow, but you definitely want to start paying attention to it. Yeah, and I'm assuming also that, you know, most of the smaller and mid-sized businesses who are listening, if the software solutions that they're using, they're most likely above board and they're going to be offering solutions to this and, and uh, contractual sign-offs and forms and agreements to help safeguard their clients as well. Right, and that's what we saw with the GDPR as you got up to the to the deadline. You know, people started panicking and realizing all of a sudden they had to deal with this thing. And right. it's a lot of the CMS systems and what have you, you know, had already developed solutions because, frankly, they didn't have a choice. They had to right. uh, or they would lose all their clients. So, so certainly there's a hope that that's going to happen here. And, again, you know, the major focus is really on the bigger companies, even with the GDPR. I mean, the, the Article 29 Working Party who drafted it, you know, they were pretty upfront about, you know, we hate Google, we hate Facebook, uh, and, you know, they're, they're pursuing them. And you saw the French last week, I think it was last week, maybe the week before, you know, find uh, Google $57 million for GDPR violations. Uh, right. So you can kind of see where that's all headed. Yep. Well, it definitely seems like the countries, and I'm assuming the states, are going to be targeting the bigger uh, concerns versus trying to source and find the smaller companies to penalize in this right, at least right away. That's generally what we see. Now, of course, Murphy's Law. (laughs) 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 This does not, you know, this is not a warranty or guarantee that your site will not be hit. Um, But yes, generally they try to try to hit. uh, They're doing that for two reasons. One, because they can make an example out of those people. uh, And so that, you know, when a Google or a Facebook gets hit, you know, then people pay attention. Right. And will modify their behavior accordingly. At least that's the theory. So. Okay. And then on to another topic, you know, brands fail in using content they don't have rights to on their social and digital platforms often. I mean, we get, we see it all the time when we try to protect our clients the most we can. We get asked you know, requests of, Hey, can we, you know, we did this campaign. Do you think they'd mind? Can we feature it? And if it's not the contract, we always say no. (laughs) But just because you're doing a partnership with someone, whether it's an influencer or a celebrity or a TV show, it doesn't mean you really have absolute rights to the whole partnership unless it's been spelled out in the contract. So are there any helpful words of advice here or words of caution or best practices that you can share and case studies of anything along those lines? Well, I think you're right on two counts. One, yes, it is a problem and it's becoming a bigger one. Uh, And two, um, you know, the contract, all of this is negotiable uh, when you're dealing with influencers, but it's important for brands to um, have an idea, uh, you know, a plan, if you will, as to uh, the campaigns that they're considering and, and the expanse of those campaigns. 
So you see, you know, it's a common situation you'll see is, uh, you know, content will be created for a specific situation and then they want to use it in another platform or another media that's not detailed in the agreement. Uh, and then that causes all kinds of aggravation um, because basically, you know, the brand's thinking, well, you know, I got ripped off, uh, but no. Uh, the default provision with a lot of these contracts, particularly when you're dealing with influencers, is that you don't own that content, or maybe you own just you know specific parts of it. Uh, and so, going through a contract in detail is critical. Um, what we see, unfortunately, is you know there, the beautiful thing about the internet is there's a lot of free information out there. Uh, the negative thing is there's a lot of free documents out there, and so people often sign influencer agreements uh, or partnership agreements or however you want to classify it, and they're terrible. Uh, and the problem that you run into is what the parties intended is reflected in the agreement. And so if uh, groups aren't taking those, you know, those steps, they run into problems. So you need to look at things like, you know, who owns the content? Uh, how long is the content going to appear? Uh, you know, where is it going to appear? Uh, what type of, um, you know, clothing is the person going to have to, you know, wear? What are they going to have to um, put into the message? Because if, you know, you're a conservative company selling suits, do you want somebody, you know, standing there with a nude model? Probably not. Um, you know, these different variations. So the, the key is really thinking through the campaign and what it is that you want to achieve. What is the look that you want to have? And then what do you want to be able to use that content for? Uh, because if you want to own that content as a brand, you should expect to pay more for it. Uh, particularly if you want to use it in other media. Uh, and so you see a lot of, lot of you know, problems with that. Um, you also need to take into account, and this is particularly true with influencers, sometimes influencers, they're not particularly, um, not so much educated on the law, but they don't really think of it that way. And so you have cases that we see popping up, uh, you know, with well-known influencers who sign a contract and they get paid a significant amount of money up front and then they don't follow through on all the requirements. <laughs> and so you have the, I think his name's Lucas Abad, you know, with Snap uh, Spectacles. And, you know, they, they, well, allegedly they paid him 45,000 bucks up front on a $60,000 contract. And then, you know, allegedly he didn't uh, fulfill the requirements, the specifics that they had called out in the contract. You know, they needed to do this number of, of shoots and, you know, wear the glasses this number of times and what have you. Uh, and that lawsuit, as far as I know, it's still ongoing. Um, but, you know, they put a lot of money into that and his response has kind of been, eh, you know, and he did a subsequent campaign, I think, where he, he may well have mocked them as well as other other groups. Uh, so that's obviously not the result that you know one is hoping for. Um, so there needs to be a practical uh, understanding of these people that you're working with. The other thing that I see often that kind of drives me a little nuts is uh, jumping around from influencers to influencers. You know, if you find somebody that produces a positive response for you, looking for long-term relationships is often better uh, with them because you're going to have a certain stability there. There are expectations on both sides. Both sides understand exactly what they are. And so you run into, you know, fewer problems with that. Um, but, you know, there are different aspects of it, uh, including things like non-disparagement clauses, uh, termination clauses, uh, maybe prorating your payments. That's, you know, a trend that we're seeing now um, where people, where companies are trying to do that with brands where they'll, they'll only pay after certain uh, milestones are, are met. And that way you avoid the situation where the influencer has been paid up front and doesn't actually produce, uh, you know, the desired content. So there are different ways to approach it, but the key is have a contract and be very, very specific in it. Uh, and you're probably going to get off uh, a much better result than if you just, you know, go into it with, you know, some vague goals.
And there's always, you know, I counsel our clients on this, you know, there, there's certainly things that you can safeguard against, you know, it takes experience to be able to put the contract together and know that. But sometimes along the way, things are always going to pop up because influencers, I, I love saying they're like herding cats because they are the least business-like out there on, on the norm, not every influencer, but most and they surprise you. I mean, it, it's kind of amazing. You're like, how did they, how did that slip through the cracks? Because that's not something I've ever seen from someone before. So that's just kind of a reality of the wild, wild west of doing influencer marketing too. You almost can't safeguard yourself from every unknown, but you can safeguard yourself from the vast risks that are out there. No, you're, you're absolutely correct. And that's where the prorated payments uh, can, can be helpful because it helps, um, you know, as we like to say, focus, focus, um, <laughs> focus the influencer on getting the actual project done. Right. Um, many, many influencers, you know, equate them to artists uh, and, you know, artists are not, uh, they, they create some amazing art, but they don't do it on a particular schedule. And if you're dealing with a larger brand, uh, you know, particularly one that is uh, used to a traditional corporate structure, you know, that's a hard mesh because you have the, the expectations, uh, you know, of the corporate uh, management and employees versus a person who, you know, maybe I'll go to the beach today. Uh, and so, so yes, no, you're absolutely right. And that's why, you know, as many details as possible can help, but yeah, there is a practical aspect to it. You have to understand, you know, if you're, if you're working with an influencer and you're, you know, I don't know, an alcohol brand or something of that sort, and they're known for, you know, partying nonstop 24 seven, well, the chances of them hitting, you know, the actual uh, requirements that you put into the contract or, you know, maybe you hope they get close. Uh, <laughs> You know, <laughs> and call it a day. The other aspect of this is, you know, I've had corporate clients who have said, you know, well, I want to sue them. And they say, well, okay, let's think about this. Uh, you know, you, you went into it, you entered an agreement with this group because you wanted the influence that they have because they have millions of followers. Well, if you sue them, you know, what's the potential negative ramifications of that? Uh, you know, and these are obviously situations that involved minor issues. Um, you know, with bigger issues, you've seen companies move forward. But, you know, with the Sabat case, um, you know, it's actually, I think, the PR agency that sued him. And uh, Snapchat Spectacles, the actual client that he was supposed to be uh, promoting, has said, no, we didn't sue him and we're not part of this. Uh, and that's an interesting uh, tack for them to take. Well, it's the less risky one because they're trying to make sure that they don't have any negativity associated with themselves, which makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Although I, I think from a legal perspective, that may make sense. But practically, you know, I think people are probably going to associate the, the Snapchat or the uh, Snap Spectacles, um, you know, with the lawsuit, unfortunately. Yeah. And also as being in future partnerships a little weak. Yes. So that's the risk of do you want to actually pull out the boxing gloves and and give it a fight or do you just want to kind of cower and wander away? It, it is, there's certainly a major practical debate that goes on in those situations um, because it is, you know, that's kind of the nature of influencers. It's going to be interesting to see how, um, you know, how, how the internet based influencers, how that all develops out because influencers have been around forever. Uh, right. You know, traditional media, uh, we think of them as something new, but it's not really the case. It's just that online, you know, it presents a whole different environment because there, there are quite a few more measurables. I mean, you know how many followers somebody has, you know, how many of them are actually there, how many of them are fake and what have you, but you can do a lot of analytics. Uh, and so it's interesting to see how it's going to play out. 
That it will. And I will say that our agency has been looking into and, and found some different escrow services that we can work with now to combat the issue that you were mentioning, because a lot of influencers will say that they want to be paid up front. They want to guarantee. And, and it's because they've worked with brands and the brands haven't paid once they've delivered. And it's a risk for an influencer just as much as it's a risk for a brand because they're putting in their time, their creativity. You know, they're actually acting as the entire creative team for that brand to do the shoot, if it's a video or take the photos, be the actor or the model in them, to be the stylist, to be the set decorator, the creative producer, the writer, the director, the all these things that it actually takes their time. And then they get burned on occasion where the brand just doesn't pay and doesn't pay ever. No, absolutely. No, it's definitely a two-way street. You know, I've had uh, influencers where the, the brand is a very large corporate entity, you know, and their attorneys want, uh, you know, um, the influencer to add them to their insurance policy as an additional insured and all this type of thing, you know, and I'm kind of laughing like, oh, insurance policy, really? <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> right. You know, this guy who's traveling the world in the VW bus. Yes. His, uh, his you know, multi-million dollar insurance policy. Yeah. He probably doesn't even have health insurance exactly exactly (laughs) really really you know wake up have you actually looked at this person uh but you know again that's the the problem that you run into with brands uh and if an influencer is in that situation you know they always have the remedy of going back and you know pursuing that brand uh legally certainly for you know right publicity claims and probably copyright claims as well yeah, but something that influencers who are starting to charge more and more, and sometimes it's very questionable about what the dollars are that they're charging for, probably need to really take some time and think about because it's very easy to say for an influencer who's you know getting paid a couple hundred dollars, maybe even a couple thousand dollars. But when you start working with an entity who is getting that $45,000 fee or a $100,000 fee, that's a true business. And so... At that stage of the game, is the influencer actually creating the business for themselves, putting the safeguards, putting the insurance in, putting all those things to allow them to actually, you know, be on a level measure of being considered a business and deserving of the dollars besides just having the base, which is an interesting thing to think about. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, there are a lot of variations to it. It's going to be interesting to see how how it develops. But I think, yes, as you're talking about, you know, the larger contracts and certainly at that Point, you know, people need to start trading it as a business. Um, and, you know, in some ways, I can understand why influencers uh, maybe are naturally against that because they're looking at, you know, at it more of, you know, from developing their brand and having to deal with the technical details and contracts and lawyers and things of that sort. It's probably not high on their uh, happy to do list. <laughs> I will tell you, as an agency owner, it's not happy on my to-do list either. (laughs) I can imagine. (laughs) I don't think there's any brand out there who's like, I can't wait to sit down with my lawyer and my insurance agent and figure out how to protect myself and how to buy more policies. I'm sure no one does. So what else should brands be thinking about and corporations be thinking about in order to better safeguard themselves uh, with content plays? I mean, this even goes into, we see it with music. You know, someone will make a sizzle reel, they'll put together, you know, this great beat. They think that it's, you know, for an internal meeting and then all of a sudden they're sharing it at trade shows or they're sharing it on their socials and their website. What are brands not thinking about that they should be? Well, certainly, you know, the content of, um, you know, a particular campaign is, is, 
is an area that's really ripe for exploitation, at least from a legal perspective, because you're exactly right. People put things into videos and into um, photos or whatever, and they don't really think it through from a legal perspective. Again, that's pretty understandable, um, but uh, there are issues there. I mean, the probably the most infamous case was, uh, I think, uh, Michelle Fan, who was the uh, YouTube Beauty. yeah influencer, did yep. beauty products, and she had allegedly created a bunch of videos and there was background music from um, a uh, different um, musicians, different artists. And they were all, I think with a record company called ultra records or something of that sort. And uh, they sued her for copyright infringement and uh, the case eventually settled. So we don't know exactly what happened, but um, you know, there were allegations on her part that she had actually contacted them and had received permission to use uh, the videos and had essentially had an oral license and, uh, you know, who knows how it played out, but it did raise the issue that uh, the content in a video uh, or in, you know, any kind of a shoot or any kind of content production, you, you have to look at it carefully. And for brands, it's kind of an interesting situation. We haven't really seen cases on it yet, but I can tell you they're coming. Um, because if we look at like copyright, for instance, you know, there are two types of secondary copyright infringement uh, liability. One's vicarious liability and the other is contributory. Um, you know, with vicarious liability, um, basically what we're looking at is a situation where a uh, defendant had the right to control uh, the infringing activity and uh, the defendant derives a financial, it's, a, um, well, it's called a commercial benefit uh, from the infringement. Now, if you think about some brands, some brands are becoming very, very hands-on. Uh, and so if there is a video that meets their specific, uh, their specifications and they review that video um, before it goes up and then it is shared on, let's say, their own social media accounts, well, you're starting to get pretty close to an, a vicarious liability situation. You could certainly see a plaintiff attorney trying it. Um, I'm not aware of any of these cases coming up yet, um, but I, I wouldn't be surprised at all to see it happen. Um, because at that point, obviously, you know, some influencers are going to, uh, you know, have significant assets and what have you, but most probably aren't. Uh, so being able to get through to the brand, uh, you know, certainly gives the plaintiff a, a much more uh, fruitful target, if you will. Uh, and so you could see that certainly becoming the case. So with brands, they're in kind of a, a catch-22 situation um, where you're trying to control basically how the content's being created, making sure that it's going to reflect, you know, whatever your, your specific message is, um, but without getting too much control where you run into a situation where, you know, you might be held liable for, um, you know, a copyright complaint. The other side of that, which is interesting, is that if you have a long-term relationship with a particular influencer um, and you're showing quite a bit of control as to what they're producing, uh, does the IRS eventually come knocking on your door and claim that the influencer is not an independent contractor, but they're an employee? And that would raise all kinds of back tax issues and things of that sort. Um, so we're kind of in you know, virgin territory here with a lot of these issues. Um, but those are two that I could definitely see you know, coming, uh, coming along here in the not too distant future. I had not even thought of the employee issue. That, that could definitely be a problem for some brands. Well, a lot of people, yes, a lot of people think of um, employees, you know, and the IRS, they don't really understand the test. The test is much more um, pervasive than I think a lot of people realize. There's actually a 20-factor test that the IRS will generally use. And some of the issues are, you know, control, 
um, you know, the, the content produced by the person, how long is the person with you? Is the person only working for you? So if you are the only client of the influencer, you know, that certainly doesn't help you. <laughs> um, you know, and so what we see in other fields, so like in the medical field, for instance, a lot of hospitals will require doctors and other medical professionals to go out and actually form their own business entity, an LLC or whatever, uh, depending on the state, um, so that they can clearly say, look, this is another company. Uh, and so you may see brands start requiring influencers, you know, to form uh, a business entity, which kind of goes back to what we were talking about is, you know, as you get bigger, you need to really start treating your, your, your personal brand, your influencer um, situation as, as more of a business than just something, you know, that's fun and you can make money off of. Right. And then, of course, there's the wonderful world of the FTC and all the guidelines they have there for revealing the fact that you have an influencer partnership versus just allowing people to assume that influencer loves, loves, loves your brand. Can you chat a little bit more about that? Sure. So basically what the FTC is looking at is uh, situations where somebody has a material connection and, um, you know, if a brand is paying you or if they're giving you you know, swag or whatever it is, if there's some kind of influence there that if you were a third party, you would want to know about, uh, then you have to disclose uh, that. And we see a lot of effort um, to get around that, which I think is a mistake. Uh, and so you'll see people, you know, they'll, they'll, uh, so for instance, maybe they cut a YouTube video and then they'll put it way down in the description. Well, that's not going to work because people don't, don't read the descriptions quite often. And if they do, they usually don't get all the way to the bottom. You know, you need to mention it in your, your video. Uh, if you're an Instagram you know, video or whatever, you know, it needs to be in the top couple lines so that it's not, you know, below the fold. Um, but a better way to approach these is instead of trying to hide them is to be upfront about them. You know, I really like this company. In fact, you know, I talked to them and, you know, they gave me this, you know, free product, you know, whatever it is, um, you know, or, you know, I became a, a brand sponsor for them because I you know, really like what they're doing uh, or I like this product or what have you. And so that, you know, you can turn it into a benefit and it helps your credibility because one, you're disclosing, but two, you're also, you know, essentially stating, you know, your belief in whatever the product uh, is. Now, the side of that, the other side of that is that endorsements, they, they have to be true. I mean, if, you, <laughs> if you've never used the product in your life, um, you know, you can't really be out there endorsing it and saying it does this, this, and this because you don't know that. Uh, and so it's an area that's, you know, the FTC likes to, um, you know, they like to uh, scream into the microphone, if you will. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure a lot of people are aware that they've issued warning letters and things of this sort, uh, but we haven't actually seen that many actions until recently. We had the uh, situation with uh, the, the boxer uh, Floyd Mayweather and DJ Khalid, I think, um, you know, where the FTC looked at them and there was a settlement in that situation uh, with PewDiePie, the video game. Uh, gentleman on YouTube, uh, I think it was Microsoft that it was giving him free games and maybe paying him. Uh, and he had put a disclosure in his description and the FTC wasn't happy with that. Um, but again, they were pretty light as far as penalties went. I don't even think there were any penalties. I think it was mostly just a slap on the wrist, uh, you know, and they wanted to see, uh, you know, more of a transparency, more of a compliance with, you know, what they've, they put up there. If you do a search online for FTC endorsement guidelines, they actually have, I believe, an FAQ page. Uh, that's pretty good. And it gives you examples of what they want to see. Um, so you definitely want to comply with that. If you don't comply at all, if you make no effort whatsoever, you know, FTC violations can be expensive. 
um, because they're, you know, the penalty per violation is something like, uh, they just raised it recently, I think it's like $41,000. Uh, and your insurance policy would not cover something like that if you have one. <laughs> uh, they tend not to cover government uh, fines or, or regulatory fines. Um, and so it is a serious subject. And I assume here at some point they're going to start getting aggressive with it because, quite frankly, influencers and brands have had plenty of time uh, to understand what the rules are and to comply with them. Yeah. And, you know, I went through this last year when we got an FTC investigation, actually, on behalf of one of our clients. And in the end, it was all good. But it's scary to go through it. And, you know, as an agency, you know, you, what you need to understand is that if they investigate for one, they're going to look at everything. They're going to look at literally every single solitary campaign you've done just to make sure that everything's on the up and up. And, you know, no one ever wants to get a letter from the IRS, the FTC, the FDA, the whomever. Um, so it's better just to avoid and make sure that you are safeguarded and know that even if you do safeguard yourself, you still may get a little bit of a prodding just to make sure you really are above board or your clients are. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And you point out an excellent point, which is, you know, even if you come out of the investigation uh, in good shape, you know, you still spent the time, energy and, you know, emotional energy going through it. Uh, and that's, you know, it's definitely not a not a fun event. No, I think my entire team saw my face go green when I was opening up that FedEx letter. So uh, it, it, it's, I think a lot of brands are very concerned still that if someone reveals that it's a hashtag ad, hashtag sponsor, if it's a video and they're saying, you know, the FTC actually wants in a video, not only at the beginning for you to say it, but also, you know, interspersely throughout the video to bring up the fact that this was indeed something paid in case someone missed that first mention that you did. Uh, but how fans are interacting with the influencers that they follow, they're assuming everything's paid. I mean, everyone also assumes everything on TV is, you know, that has a product placement's paid. There's a lot of assumptions out there. And so if the assumptions are there, why not just go with it and say, yes, indeed, they think so highly of our product. And I think so highly of that product that, yes, we have an absolute brand partnership here. They pay me. They give me free things. I love them. The reason I'm partnered with them is because it's an authentic product for me to actually use and have in my everyday life. And if you just embrace it, you're going to have a lot more success overall. Yes, no, absolutely. I think that's definitely the best approach. And the FTC, you know, approach on some of these issues is a bit of a head scratcher. Um, I do understand the repeated uh, disclosures during longer videos, but there's also, you know, I mean, there's also the editorial and business side of that, that <laughs> becomes a bit bizarre, um, you know, that if you're throwing this in the face of viewers all the time, it's, it's a bit much, I would say, but yeah. that's, you know, that's what they want to see. And so unfortunately you have to comply with it. Um, I think the frustrating thing for a lot of brands and for a lot of influencers is that you see a lot of people who are not complying and they say, well, why should I have to, if you know, others aren't. And the problem is, is if you get into an investigation or you're in court, you know, others were doing it is not a defense. Uh, yeah. And so, you know, unfortunately, uh, that's just the way the game works. No, and in the reality of it is, I think the United States is still a little more calm on things along those lines than a lot of other countries. Um, you know, especially in the lines of if we flip over again to, you know, product placement in TV shows. I mean, in Germany, they actually have to have a pop-up on a screen stating the fact that, 
know, anything in that content was actually paid for. It is an advertisement. Um, and in the UK was following suit on that. And the United States was looking at it. And the United States decided that was taking it too far. So we actually are a little bit less aggressive in many cases than some of our other Western counterparts. Well, absolutely. Yeah, as much as we complain about the FTC and what have you, it's uh, no, it's a whole different world over there. And the irony, particularly in Europe, Europe, they're just completely out of control, in my opinion. <laughs> um, the irony of it is, you know, those those warnings, they become the warning on your mattress. You know, right. wh- whoever reads them and even if they pop up in front of you, you know, all you're doing is trying to get them off the screen. Yes, yes, yes. Whatever. Just get it off. Uh, and the irony of it is that the EU knows this. Uh, when they were drafting, they were looking at uh, the new e-privacy directive, which is kind of stalled right now. It's going to deal with email and these, some of these other issues. Um, but they recognized, and there was a big report, and everybody agreed that the little cookie pop-ups that you see on websites, and you're seeing them all the time now because of the GDPR, but there was a regulation that existed before uh, that most EU-based sites had them up already. They don't work. Nobody reads them. People are just hitting whatever buttons they need to to get them off. Uh, you know, and there's this there's this mentality that uh, people are idiots, <laughs> and that and that you know we need to put all of these warnings up. Well, I mean, literally, if you followed every internet law in the world and you complied with everything, when people landed on your website or your app, they wouldn't see it. They would just see this field of warnings and pop-ups and you know there are all these different little rules states have bizarre little rules um you know there's just all these different things that are out there and and you know unfortunately you know when the internet started in the late night well not started but when it started to become a commercial medium in the late 1990s you know we had this utopian view of the world wide web uh that's kind of going by the wayside now we're kind of in an empire strikes back era and a lot of people are looking at a concept called splinternet from an economic perspective you know the internet's going to start dividing up we're already seeing it uh, you know, if you're in London right now and you try and pull up the Los Angeles Times website, you can't see it uh, because they chose not to comply with the GDPR uh, because it didn't work with their their uh, their monetization of data. You know, and newspapers are unique because they have some such a difficult time making money. Um, but uh, that's rather astounding if you think about it. Uh, that's a major newspaper in the world. Uh, and to be unable to view it in some place like London, which, you know, is a democracy, uh, it's a little disturbing. Absolutely. Well, Richard, do you have any last bits of advice for our listeners today? Um, not particularly. You know, I think as if you're looking at an area where you're going to see a lot of developments, um, you know, privacy loans, definitely something to keep an eye on. Even if you just go, you know, create a Google alert for privacy, uh, you'll see a lot of laws, you know, rolling through there. If you have a website and you think that, um, you know, you're bringing in more than maybe 4,000 you know, unique visitors a month. You need to start paying attention to the California privacy law because it's going to get here sooner rather than later. Uh, and then if you're in the influencer field, if you're a brand or even if you're an influencer, you know, start paying a lot more attention to your contracts uh, and make sure, you know, that everything that you want is detailed in there and make sure you understand what it is that you want, uh, not just, you know, specific to that campaign, but how you might reuse it in other ways. Uh, and it'll help get rid of a lot of the problems that people run into. And Richard, if any of our listeners want to get a hold of you and want some help on some legal advice that they need to implement or have looked into, how can they reach out to you? Uh, you can always find me on uh, my website. It's SoCal, like Southern California, SoCalInternetLawyer.com. Uh, I'm also on LinkedIn quite a bit, uh, so you can catch me there. Uh, and uh, yeah, just mention the show and I'll be happy to give you a free consult. 
Well, Richard, thank you so much for being on today. I absolutely got tremendous value out of it. I know our listeners did as well, and I really do appreciate your time. Well, thank you for having me on. It was a good, good experience. And have a great afternoon, everyone. 